I'd like to encourage you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're going to be focusing our attention on verses 1 to 5 this morning. Let me remind you before we read this portion of Holy Scripture that the Apostle Paul, as we have been studying in the book of Romans, has just completed a very significant indictment against the pagan world of his day in Romans 1 of the sinfulness of man. And as we read for our scriptural reading in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, these pagans or Gentiles to whom Paul is primarily speaking stand under the judgment of God because of their sin. In Romans 2, however, Paul now desires to turn his argument, his indictment, primarily on those Jews who are religious, but who are nevertheless just as sinful as these Gentiles to whom he has been primarily referring in chapter 1, and therefore stand under the same judgment and condemnation of an almighty and holy God. You see, it ultimately isn't the issue whether you are Jewish or Gentile, which, by the way, are the two categories, the only two categories, in which the Bible places the entire human race. We all stand under the wrath of God because of our sin against Him. And what Paul is doing here in chapter 2, indeed in the first three chapters, at least up until chapter 3, verse 20, is to show where and why the condemnation of God against sinners is just. And with that in mind, let us read in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's 
righteous judgment will be revealed. For the Jews here in Romans 2 verses 1 to 5, the Apostle Paul explains that simply because they appear religious, they will not escape the divine retribution of God simply because they appear wholeheartedly with Paul in agreement about his assessment of the sinfulness of the pagan world as Paul describes it in Romans 1. You can almost hear these Jews, as Paul says in Romans 1, what he does about the pagan world, we agree with you, Paul. We wholeheartedly agree with you that the pagan world needs to be told a thing or two about sin and about evil and about wickedness. We wholeheartedly concur. But his indictment now turns to them. And that's how it is with those who think they are religious, at least outwardly. But inwardly are no better than the pagan world around them and are therefore under the righteous judgment of God. I was thinking about that this week as I read in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette of the shocking statements of the outwardly religious cult called the Moonies and their founder. You may have read that. The Reverend Sun Myung Moon. The New York Times originally reported it. It goes like this. The United States Capitol, a symbol of democracy, is not ordinarily a place where coronations occur. So news that the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, the eccentric and exceedingly wealthy Korean-born businessman, donned a crown in a Senate office building and declared himself the Messiah, while members of Congress watched, is causing a bit of stir. One congressman, Representative Danny K. Davis, Democrat of Illinois, wore white gloves and carried a pillow holding one of two ornate gold crowns that were placed on the heads of Moon and his wife, Dr. Hak Jahan Moon, at the ceremony, which took place March 23rd and capped a reception billed as a peace awards banquet. Davis, for the record, says he held the wife's crown and was, quote, a bit surprised, unquote, by Moon's Messiah remarks, which were delivered in Korean, but accompanied by a written translation. In part, the translation read that emperors, kings, and presidents had, quote, declared to all heaven and earth that Reverend Sun Myung Moon is none other than humanity's Savior, Messiah, returning Lord, and true parent. Unquote. Now, of course, if you follow that quote precisely, if he's already here, I'm not sure how to follow the returning Lord part. By Wednesday, after news of the event had reported 
had been reported in the online magazine Salon and various newspapers, Capitol Hill was in full-blown backpedaling mode. Not, not, of course, that they're ever in backpedaling mode. Lawmakers who attended but missed the coronation, as they saw it or did not think much of it, struggled to explain themselves. I remember the king and queen thing, said Representative Roscoe G. Bartlett, Republican of Maryland. But we have the king and queen of the prom, the queen and king, king and queen of the 4-H, the Mardi Gras, and all sorts of other things. I had no idea what he was the king of. At 84, Moon cuts a curious figure in Washington where he mingles with the city's power elite by dint of his dual roles as religious leader and media mogul. He owns the Washington Times, which builds itself as a conservative alternative to the Washington Post, as well as United Press International, the wire service. He calls himself Father and has drawn notoriety for officiating at mass weddings. As a conservative, he claims close ties to President Bush and the Republican Party. Elijah E. Cummings, Democrat of Maryland, said the invitation to the banquet was similar to countless requests he receives to honor local constituents. In this case, he said, a black bishop in his district was among the award recipients. That's a big deal, he said. If you've got a bishop coming to be honored, you've got to show up. It's a disturbing article to, to read. However, I know what the real scheme is here. Just like honoring this black bishop from Maryland by bringing him to Washington, D.C. for a bogus award, I remember a couple of years ago when Moon came to Little Rock to speak. You may remember that. He tried to entice a number of African-American pastors to bring themselves and their people to the event by privately giving them expensive gifts including giving the pastors Rolex watches as thank yous if they would bring their people. And the event was packed. You see, beloved, the world is filled with would-be messiahs, religious charlatans, fakes of all kinds, who profess their piosity, but at the heart level are as pagan as the list Paul describes here in Romans 1. And all along, they're applauding what Paul says here in chapter 1. Oh, yes. That's how the pagans operate, don't they? Dishonorable passions, Romans 1.26. Homosexuality. Passions for one another. Shameless acts. Filled, verse 29, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness and gossips and slanderers and haters of God. Oh, yes, that's what those people who don't know God are all about. And all of the religious people, they applaud Paul's indictment against these irreligious people. Paul turns around and says, Romans 1 is for all of those who don't know God, even though they should, 
And he says about them in verse 20, they are without excuse because they should know about God. He's plainly evident in creation. But now he says, chapter 2, it's not just the irreligious, it's not just the people who don't know the truth of Scripture, it's not just about those foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless people. It's about even God's chosen people. It's not just the irreligious, it's the religious. And I want you to notice Paul's logic here in verses 1 to 5. I want to go out of order in these verses because I want to show you everything that is here. Three outline points that describe it beautifully from the pen of Paul. Number one, the outwardly religious practice the same wickedness as unbelievers. That's his first point. The outwardly religious practice the same wickedness as unbelievers. That's what he says in both verses 1 and 3. And then secondly, he says in verses 2 and 5, God's judgment is righteous and will come on the final day to those who are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That's his point in verses 2 and 5. And then finally, number 3, God is delaying His righteous judgment in order to show the riches of His character. That's in verse 4. God is delaying His righteous judgment in, in order to show the riches of His character. Verse 4. I'll repeat those as we go along. By the way, most scholars believe, and I think it's right, that Paul is using a rhetorical device here in this section called the diatribal arguments. A diatribe. He's picking up a, an imaginary person and he's arguing with him back and forth as a rhetorical device. We sometimes use that even in preaching, where we'll say, but someone will say, and then we'll quote an imaginary person. And then we'll have a dialogue with that imaginary person. But don't be caught off guard by that. There are certainly a number of people in Paul's day. And if he were here, he could probably name exactly who those people are that he could have a real dialogue with. Real Jews. He could name them. He doesn't choose to do that because he wants to include all of them. In verse 1, he just simply says, O man. And he'll say that again in verse 3, O man. But we know he's not talking about just one man because he says, every one of you. So he's talking about a group. He's picking an imaginary person in which to build his case. Although there would certainly be in Rome many religious people who would have affirmed wholeheartedly what Paul said about the pagans there in Romans 1. They would have been cheering him on when he shows God's wrath against sinners who are utterly irreligious, especially as it's described in verses 28 to 31. He gives that incredible, hideous list of all of those sins. 
And the religious people would have said, yes, that's true of those irreligious people, those people that don't know God. And now he turns on them and says, but wait, you who are religious, at least outwardly so, you practice the same wickedness as unbelievers. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 and he says, therefore... And he reaches back, I think, all the way to verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1 because he's continuing his dialogue about the wrath of God. And so if you go back to chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the universality of man's sinfulness. That's both Jew and Gentile. That's what God is going to do on the final day to everyone in a cataclysmic unleashing of His wrath. All unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse either. You see in verse 20, to you Gentiles, you are without excuse. And you Jews, in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse either. And so it's the whole human race that has no excuse. And the issue of God's wrath, he wants to now speak of this coming cataclysmic judgment among not the irreligious, but the religious, God's judgment on them. Notice what he says. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, that's the same idea as O man, O man, every one of you, the judge, practice The very same things. And that's where we derive our outline point. The outwardly religious practice the same wickedness as unbelievers. The pagan world. The Gentiles. You practice the very same things. And now look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, O religious man, O Jewish person, You who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What's the rhetorical answer? No. No, you you won't escape the judgment of God just as they will not escape the judgment of God. Now notice very, very carefully what Paul isn't saying here. He isn't saying that it is wrong to judge in and of itself. Don't misconstrue what he's saying. Even Jesus himself said in John 7.24, judge with righteous judgment. In this text and so many others like Matthew 7, Jesus' own teaching, People have misconstrued to say that you should never judge 
You should never judge anyone at any time for any reason. And that's not what's being said here. We must judge. We must have critical thinking. We must adjudicate. But we cannot judge, here's the point, with hypocritical judgment. That's the point Paul is making here. We cannot hypocritically judge others. God's judgment is upon those who are condemning sin, but who at that moment practice the very same things. That's what Paul is saying here explicitly. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the same things. That's a, that's a lot of words to say hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. What does hypocrisy mean? Two-faced. You say one thing, you do another. It must mean this. Erstwhile, Paul himself would constantly be open to criticism because he is regularly judging people. He's regularly condemning sin. Isn't that what he just did in chapter 1? He says, verse 29, filled People are with all manner of unrighteousness and evil covetousness and malice, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness and gossips and slanderers and haters of God and insolent and haughty and boastful and inventors of evil and disobedient to parents and foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless. And if you couldn't judge those kinds of people, someone would immediately charge Paul and say, you're judging people. Paul, don't do that. Don't judge people. You cannot judge. You mustn't do that. How can Paul do that? Because he's not doing those sins. You see? He's not, he's not a hypocritical judger. You see, if Paul can't speak to those sins and in God's place speak for God as God is the judge of those things, then Paul himself would be called an antinomian. What is an antinomian? That's someone who has an attitude for which there is no law. There, there are no issues of obedience in the Christian life. And therefore, there would be no sense to Paul's speaking of judgment against sin, any kind of sin. We couldn't speak of any judgment, of any critical thinking, of any adjudication about anyone's Christian life. It'd be a free-for-all. Anybody could do anything for any reason at any time. That's what we mean when you hear theologians or others talk about antinomianism. The Greek word namas means law, anti-law, antinomianism. It's an attitude that says, I can do anything I want. I can live any way I want. And if you judge me, you're, you're judging me. You can't do that. That's not what Paul has in mind here. What he has in mind is, you are judging people while at the same time practicing the very same things. That is quite a different matter. And that is what he is saying is wrong. And that is what he is saying is the condemnation here. In fact, it's self-condemnation. He says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. And in that you have no excuse. 
for in passing judgment on another, condemning others, you're practicing the same thing you condemn yourself. To whom? To God. Because God knows what's going on. He knows your heart. He has x-ray omniscience. He can see not only through your life, but through your own heart. Now, some have suggested that Paul must not be speaking explicitly here of the Jews in this new chapter, even though, remember, there weren't any chapter divisions. But as he makes this transition with the word therefore, he must not be speaking of the Jews because the Jews would not have been listed with some of these sins because if it says here you practice the very same things and then if you link that up with say for instance homosexuality here in verses 40 uh, excuse me verses 26 and 27 then someone's going to come along and say wait a minute I know Jewish history and the Jews abhorred homosexuality there were Levitical laws there were commandments against homosexuality and the Jews abhorred these things and so they weren't practicing the same things as the Gentiles. So this can't be Paul turning the tables on the Jews. He must be talking about somebody else. Well, it doesn't mean that Paul has to be specifically referring to every single sin that he has just outlined in chapter 1. I want you to notice that Paul does give a representative list of examples here, even in chapter 2, of what he's referring to that could very well fit the Jews that he's explicitly referring to. In fact, he even says, you call yourself a Jew. Look at verse 17, chapter 2. For if you call yourself a Jew, he obviously must be referring to the Jews, at least at that point. For if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, you see, this is what they're bringing before God. This is what they're saying gets them in the kingdom. This is what makes them acceptable before God. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent. In other words, they're stacking up their pedigree as over against all of the things that the Gentiles don't have, the pagans don't have. They don't have the law. They can't boast in God. They don't know His will. They can't approve what is excellent. But the Jew with his thumbs behind his suspenders, says, I do, I have these things, I'm instructed in the law, verse 19, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, the blind being those pagans, a light to those who are in darkness, that's surely a reference to the Gentiles, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you have it all, you Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God, the very knowledge of truth, the very knowledge of God, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, here's Paul's indictment, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Here's his own list. 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. See, here's his list. See, he doesn't have to have a list that mirrors exactly what's going on here in chapter 1. He has his own list. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And notice what he says in verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, not just with your outward and physical signs like circumcision and you're going to the temple, we might say. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 23? Excoriating the scribes and Pharisees. You look so religious. You look so holy, but inwardly, you're like whitewashed tombs. See, so he is very definitely, at least in some, if not all, of this chapter, saying, I'm turning the tables now. And it's not just a Gentile issue as they stand condemned before God. It's also a Jewish issue, even though it shouldn't be that way, because you have the law of God, you have the oracles of God, you have the Torah. You have everything you need in order to obey God. And instead, you practice the very same things. And while they may not fit every single sin listed in verses 29 to 31 of chapter 1, he gives a list of other sins in chapter 2 for which they do commit. And when they do commit those, they condemn themselves because they are committing them and at the same time practicing them, he says. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse. No excuse. O oh, man, every one of you who judges. And do you suppose, O oh, man, read in there, you hypocrite, the outwardly religious person who is secretly living the life of an affront to God, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? No. You likewise will be judged, just like the ones who are pagans, who are flagrantly sinning because they've never been warned about God's Word or God's judgment. And Paul says, now I'm warning. I'm warning. And I must ask this morning in this room, what about you? There's really no one in this room that could say, especially in this room, I haven't been warned. I haven't been told. I haven't been taught. I'm religious. I go to church. I have a Bible. I read it occasionally. I give money. I sing. I pray. I've been involved in a missions trip. I'm a young person who looks at my parents' faith and I think everything is well. See, that's the issue. The issue is never how religious you may appear to be on the outside. The issue will always and forever be 
what's going on on the inside. We've all been well taught. We receive some of the finest Bible teaching, the sharpest of instruction, and we might even condemn some of the non-religious around us, some of the pagan practices around us, and yet some of us ourselves might be living a hidden life of sin. Saying, can you believe what can be shown on television these days and then secretly watching it when no one else is around. Oh, can you believe how far our culture has fallen and then you are one of those contributors of it. Do you condemn in others what you practice yourself? Notice Paul's words again in verse 1. Practice the very same things. That ought to be like a dagger to the heart. Notice verse 3. You yet do them yourself. That's the essence of hypocrisy. Yet do them yourself. God's judgment is upon those who condemn the actions of others while they are living in them. Does that characterize you? Is that the practice of your life? If it does, you're under the judgment of God. That's Paul's point. You have no excuse. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Secondly, look at verse 2. Don't blame God. His judgment is righteous. And it will come on the final day to those who are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Don't miss that. Rightly falls. Or maybe some of your translations might say, according to truth. God is the embodiment of truth. He tells the truth. He's never lied, never will lie. Embodiment of truth. Truth teller, truth speaker, essence of truth. And it rightly falls, according to truth, this judgment of God on those who do such things. Verse 5. What will it be, this judgment of God? What is the causal relationship of God's judgment to us? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. His judgment rightly falls and His judgment is righteous. Paul says, no... No one can say that God is unfair. Oh, they may say that right now. But on the day of wrath, on the final day of the Lord, on the final day of God's judgment, no one will legitimately, rightly, believingly, truly, legitimately, 
genuinely say, this is unfair. Because all the motives of their heart will be exposed. All the issues of their life will become manifest. And God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And lest anyone react with an antinomian response, Paul shows that God must and will deal with all sin. And He will do it because of the hard and impenitent heart of the hypocrite. This has always been the Jew's problem, specifically. It's been man's problem, generally, a hard heart. Notice what Paul says in Romans 2, verses 25 to 29. For circumcision, this is obviously talking to the Jews, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's valueless. So if a man who is uncircumcised, a pagan, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? You see, the issue is always a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of obeying God, not some outward ceremony. It's of value, but only as it's linked with obedience to God. Verse 27, Then he who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. It's, it was never an issue of somebody in a Jewish family becoming circumcised on the eighth day, and then automatically that person's in. Well, he's in the kingdom. He's been circumcised. And didn't Paul reveal that in Philippians 3? I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Man, I thought I was in. And then shock of all shocks. I realized I was out. And everything I thought was in my credit column actually to me was in my debit column. Isn't that a shock? And yet, he was so blinded as were the Jews even today, if they turned back, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, they would have read this. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. See, it's never been a physical circumcision only religion. It's been a circumcision of the heart. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. It's always been like that. 
It's never some outward ceremony. And as he says there in Romans 2, even if some pagan person who isn't physically circumcised does the dictates of the law, he's a, he's a believer inwardly. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, looking forward to that great day, and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. It's always been a matter of the circumcision of the heart. That's what they needed. They needed a renewal of the heart. And you know what? You can translate that today because someone might say, well, look, I'm not a Jewish person, not involved in circumcision as a religious issue. What are you talking about? It's any religious issue. It's any religious person. Someone could say, well, look, I'm not Jewish. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I'm an Episcopalian. I'm a whatever. And I am counting on the fact that my mother was religious. And my father was brought up in the church. And that I myself was baptized. And that I give regularly. And I'll have you know that my name is recorded in First Baptist Church books. And you talk with people. And they will say those very things. And God's indictment is through Paul... You have no excuse, O man, because those things merit you nothing. Because circumcision, church attendance, name on a roll, walking an aisle, signing a card, absolutely merits nothing except you have a heart religion. A religion through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if you're a Mooney, you don't go around proclaiming yourself to be the Messiah and having all the outward trappings of religiosity and then secretly behind the scenes you amass a fortune at the hands of your followers who give you, the leader, all their money by the selling of their flowers while they remain in poverty and then you hand out Rolex watches for influence and favor and have banquets with dignitaries while you yourself are living an immoral life. You stand under the judgment of God. Because Jesus Himself said in the Olivet Discourse, watch out for those who say, here I am, I am the Christ. He said, beware of man. Beware of men like that. In fact, he even explicitly said, watch out for those people. When they say, I'm the Christ, he says, I am not Him. What you are doing is, as Paul says here in Romans 2.5, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. The final day of the Lord. You want to see what kind of day that is? Turn your Bibles to Zephaniah. Zephaniah. It's in that place where you have a hard time finding because all of the pages of your Bible are sort of glued together. 
I know, happiness is finding someone who knows where Zephaniah is. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, A day of wrath is that day. Zephaniah 1.15 A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry. That's a terrible day. Verse 18 Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. Oh, but Lord, I was philanthropic. I gave all that money and they named all those buildings after me. Won't be able to deliver you on the day of the wrath of the Lord in the fire of His jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed For a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. All of the outward religious service that you could possibly crank out will avail you nothing if you don't have a true circumcision of the heart. Chapter 2, verse 2. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. You see, it's always been a doing of the just commands of the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And see, the Jews, they they thought they were exempt from this. They thought just because they were born Jewish, they were in the kingdom. They said to Jesus in John 8, We're of Abraham's family. We're in. What are you talking about? But all of the religious heritage designed to bring them to a place of repentance and brokenness. And they didn't see it. And Paul is endeavoring to show them what hypocrites they really are. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. Look at the final point. God is delaying His righteous judgment in order to show the riches of His character. This is so, so wonderful. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. This is a great place to conclude this morning. Or do you presume on the riches of of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Oh, beloved, don't presume on the riches of His kindness. God has fixed a day in which He will judge all men, Jew and Gentile alike. And today is the day of God's kindness. Every waking breath that you and I enjoy is another day of God's kindness. And if you, within the hearing of my voice, 
are outwardly religious and may even be assuming that you are right with God. But if God has revealed to you even this morning that you indeed are practicing the same kinds of things that are listed here in Romans 1 and 2 and that you in fact are under the judgment of God, it is the kindness of God that is meant, Paul says, to lead you to repentance. What is repentance? It's a turning from your sin. It's a turning from your sin. It's a turning away. I like what Leon Morris says about it. It refers to that change which comes over a sinner when he sees his wrongdoing no longer as attractive but as damnable. He turns away from it. This means abandoning the security of the old way. God's demand for repentance is a demand that we trust Him even though it means forsaking our human securities. In the New Testament, repentance is not simply negative. It means turning to a new life in Christ, a life, a life of active service to God. Doesn't it say in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 that the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, it's not just negative. It's not just turning from idols. It's positively turning to God to serve Him, the living and true God. That's repentance. It's a change of mind, metanoia, that leads to a change of behavior. It leads to a righteous life. You see your deeds and all of the things that you did to dishonor God and you don't see that as anything other than damnable. And you say to yourself, I want to turn from that life of sin. I want to say no to that life of sin. I want to say yes to God, to His righteousness, because I know that I'm presently living under the abiding wrath of God. And you know what that is, Paul says? It's God's kindness. And you know, we needed this as we went all the way through Romans 1, and now as we go into Romans 2, we hear wrath, 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 immorality, claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles and homosexuality and all kinds of sins. And instead of all of that, God says, you can take instead of my wrath, my kindness. My kindness. And notice what also he says. And forbearance. You know what that means? God's, God's enduring us. He's enduring us. Why? Why is He enduring us? Because He's holy. He's holy. He's holy other than we are. We are incredibly destitute and sinful and wicked and abominable in His sight. And he, have, he has every right because of His holiness to wipe all of us out at a moment's notice and would be completely and rightly allowing His wrath to fall on us because we are doing these things. His righteous judgment, Paul says. But God says He's forbearing. He's enduring us. Why? 
to show us His character. That He's a forbearing God. And His patience. Can, can you think of three better terms? Kindness, forbearance, and long-suffering? I don't think we fully realize, and even Paul says, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You need to repent. You must repent. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we all stand... as people who have received the Word of God. We've been dealt with so very kindly by Yourself. Living in a country as we do, where the Bible is lauded as a sacred book by so many, where we have the freedom of worship, expression, where we are free to have Bible studies publicly in homes, where the truth of Scripture is spoken of, declared, preached, where even a message like this and be boldly proclaimed that we are all without excuse, religious or irreligious, Jew or Gentile. And this is an expression of your kindness, your forbearance, your patience. Yet, Father, it is no doubt true there might be some, if not many among us, young and old, who would have been growing up in religious homes with a thin veneer of piousness, but who have never been circumcised in the heart, who have never truly been redeemed, who have never truly repented, turned from their sin. Paul tells us that it is your kindness that is meant to lead us to that repentance. And I pray, Father, that those in our midst would be unmasked today as hypocrites and through your kindness and forbearance and patience would have our hidden life of sin unmasked and that we would truly repent place our faith, our confidence alone in Jesus Christ 
as our Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. I pray that there would be many among us who would be truly religious, not living two-faced, but living for Christ genuinely. Your judgment will rightly fall on that great and terrible day of the Lord. May we be shielded from that by the grace of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.